Ah, good morning. How you all doing? Hope you guys are safe and well. And you guys, uh, I'm trying to give you guys a better view of my garage. There we go. Guys love cars. All right. We got Logan and Hosh today. We will give you guys a few seconds to hop on and we get our session started. We got some questions, but please post more questions uh, right here in the comment section so uh, we can get to it after we're done with this list. And Logan, do we have any new members you want to introduce? We do. So good morning, everyone. Happy Tuesday. And uh, our new members who have joined in, we always want to give a shout out to every week, starting with Philip Henry. Welcome. Eric Ray. Welcome to the group. Salvador Ortega, uh, Neil Kandu, Chris Ford, we have Maruk, um, and then looks like Colette also joined in over the past week. So welcome, everyone. Awesome. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the club. All right. Uh, Logan, hit me up. What have we got for the, this week's session? All right, so to kick us off for the week, we have a question from Durant, and he asks, how do you take into consideration the year built when analyzing a property, mm -hmm. and would you consider a shopping plaza that was built in the 50s? Well, but retail centers is not as um, important the year built. Um, you know, the obviously your roof uh, system, your uh, structure, those come into question, right? Um, if it's holding up um, and a property condition report, PCR is an absolute must on older properties. I recommend it on all properties. But with retail, I'm not as concerned with the year built. There is a ton of neighborhood centers that are older and um, are fully stabilized and collecting great rents. All right. Uh, and then we have a next question from Chris Ford, one of our newer members. Welcome again. Um, he said, I'm a 26-year-old licensed real estate broker in the Bay Area with about eight years of real estate experience in residential real estate sales mm -hmm. and rent-controlled apartment building investing in California. A partner and I syndicated a $1.5 million fourplex with 25% down in August of 2020. I'm wanting to do more deals, but this one has been a major time suck and headache so far dealing with the entitled tenants through the COVID eviction memorandum. Uh, currently deciding between looking for a larger five to 20 unit apartment deal near me, though it still take a lot of time for self-management or a larger two, 20 to hundred unit apartment building outside of the Bay area or out of state to where he would hire a property manager or a commercial deal such as office or retail in California or out of state. All of my experiences in residential and apartments, and I don't have a lot of personal equity to invest currently. Uh, he would have to go the route of partnering and raising money. So the question is, with that context, what would you do if you were me? Should I stick mm -hmm. with building up the apartment portfolio to gain experience and track record or jump straight into a commercial deal? Man, uh, definitely get out of California. Uh, California is a nightmare being a landlord on the residential side. They're very pro-tenant, not so pro-landlord. Texas, on the other hand, is the other way around. You can kick a tenant out in pretty short order from what I hear. Um, I would definitely focus on much, much bigger properties in the multifamily asset, since that's where your experience is, and uh, go out of a state. Uh, Texas is great. 
there is a, a pretty big sub market, uh, Dallas, uh, Houston, uh, San Antonio, Austin, uh, all those areas, you'll be able to find a property, probably, you know, anywhere from 30 to 100 unit that you could add value. And I still have relatively high, you know, cap rate. Uh, that's what I would focus on. If you want to do the, you know, want to pivot to commercial property, you know, I would focus on a small retail center. Uh, but seems like since you don't have a lot of capital, I would focus on what you have honed your skill in, which is multifamily, but go out of a state. You're probably going to have a much easier time raising money uh, to acquire those properties, add value, engage a third party management company. Uh, definitely the opportunities are a lot more out of a state especially when it comes to residential. All right. And then a second question from Chris, he said, we structured the fourplex as an 8% preferred return mm -hmm. to all of the money with the 70, 30 split, 30% of profits above the pref go to the general partners. Mm -hmm. Question number two, what are your thoughts on partnering at a high level? And if, when you partner on deals, what are some typical structures that you like? Wow. Pref 8% pref on residential in California. That's extremely high. I would say probably a 4% pref is more realistic because the cap rates, especially on four places are, you know, all sub five. And then when you go to leverage it, you're going to have to pay principal interest and probably some downtime to lease the property. If you're doing renovation, uh, that reduces your, you know, NOI or cap rate for the first year. But anyhow, long story short, what do I like? Um, I don't do any pref. Um, I like 70, 30, a split is what I typically do. Well, first of all, I, I don't do a lot of syndication. I only have one property that I'm buying with some of my country members. Um, but if I were to do continue doing that, that would be a 70, 30, a split across the board. Um, no pref on there. And I would buy things that are value add where, you know, my, my focus is more on building equity, not so much, uh, the cash flow, and, um, and commercial properties, you know, I like to get 30% rate of return, um, you know, per year. When you, when I look at deals, if it's less than that, I start losing uh, interest. All right. And then I know it's high interest for a lot of members in the group on finding equity partners, syndicating. Uh, Manny, can you explain what a PREP is to people who may not know? Yeah, PREP is basically you give a preferred rate of return to your limited partners and then general partners share the anything above that 70, 30 is split. So let's just say you buy a property for a, a fourplex for a million bucks and it's got an 8% cap rate. And uh, so the limited partners that put up the money, they get the 8%. The general partner that's syndicating it, a sponsor gets nothing. But now the general partner goes out and does renovations, raise the rents to double. Now it's 16% cap. So now the first 8%, the limited partners still keep the second 8% on the, on the million, which is 80 grand, uh, 30% goes to a sponsor, which is 24,000 bucks. And the remainder of $56,000 gets a split between the limited partners on top of the first tranche of the 8%. So hopefully I didn't lose you guys, but <laughs> awesome. Um, so we have our next question from Henry. He said, hi, Manny. I have found an ideal purchase mm -hmm. a few hours away from me, a mom and pop shopping center mm -hmm. with five units in Norfolk, Virginia. 
Love it. Unfortunately, it ended up being an escrow already mm. after being on the market, just a few days after being put on the market after contacting the broker. He said the area isn't fond of doing long-term leases that the current tenants plan on staying and have been there for five years plus each. And he would contact me if escrow gets canceled. Have you mm. heard of this type of scenario? Yeah, all the time. So if it's an older property, much a smaller footprint on the retail tenants, yeah, typically they're probably one year to three year at a time. They're not gonna sign a 10 year lease. It's very typical. And also the duration the, uh, that they've been at the property. If they've been there for 25 years and they start with a three year lease, five year lease, and then they have options, the options expired or you know uh, they ran out of the options and they just been month to month, that's also typical. So it depends how long they've been at the property. All right. And then Henry, it looks like maybe you had more to your question and it got cut off. It has the last two words that says I'm thinking, and then that's all that it includes. <laughs> so if you want to include more context, uh, drop a comment and then we'll circle back to your question. He's still thinking about it. <laughs> uh, so next question we have is from Brian. He said, Oh, this is a repeat question. Uh, so we'll skip to the next one with Damon. What should I do if seller refuses to let me interview tenants during the option period? He claims that tenants aren't aware of the sale and he wants to keep it that way. Every seller is going to object. You got to put your foot down. Uh, what would I do? I would, you know, just do another walkthrough and um, tell them you want to walk through the entire property with your general contractor and see if you can start a conversation with a tenant when you do your walkthrough. Say, hey, we're just doing a walkthrough. Uh, as you know, the property is in escrow. Any issues with the building? Um, you know, usually the tenant interviews are by phone, but if the sellers object, uh, object into that, then do it through physical walkthrough and hopefully you'll talk to, you know, someone responsible at running that business, GM, office manager, or hopefully the owner. All right. Uh, next question from Brett Siegel. He said, Manny, I'm going to, up, I'm going to upfront and just ask, I hope you can help. I took your starter program and I'm hungry as one person can be to make the next move. If I have hundred K in equity ready to access, what is the safest and most effective way to turn that into 1 million? You said yourself, the hardest was the initial starting point. And now that I am past that, mm -hmm. what should I do? And, uh, what are the potentials of doing a JV project with you? Wow. First of all, congrats. hundred thousand is a great, uh, amount of savings to you know jump start your career in commercial real estate or even residential obviously um i don't know which market you're in but uh if you're focused on just your own local market um there may be an opportunity there i don't know your market but with hundred thousand is certainly enough to tie up an amazing opportunity in commercial uh, space uh if you know what you're doing and you spend time and learn my strategies and I start hunting train your eyes to find that opportunity that i teach you guys in the program you can tie it up while you're doing that build your network with other members or investors that have the equity so they can become your equity partner and uh once you tie it up and you can do your uh you know analysis and performance and how you can add value and what the potential upside is on the opportunity then you can go ahead bring an equity partner or you know basically flip it double escrow to another buyer that's looking for the same opportunity 
Um, what asset class? Obviously, easiest ones are fourplex. Even buying like single-family residence um, with a bigger lot that you can kind of do an ADU, um, adding an additional unit. A lot of investors doing that because rental rates are crazy. So even for a studio or one bedroom in some areas, you can get fifteen hundred to two thousand a month. Um, so a lot of people are buying and doing the ADUs. I don't do any residential, as you guys know, but there is opportunity in residential, and it's a low-hanging fruit because it doesn't take a um, a lot of effort uh, to add value on residential if you can add a square footage to the property. Um, fourplex obviously is another one, but with hundred thousand, if you can focus, find a small retail center that's been mismanaged and there is a lot of has a lot of meat on the bone. I would say tie it up. And what is what is it to be my partner? If there is enough meat on the bone, you know, a couple of million dollar profit, um, I may take you up on that. All right, and then uh, he followed it up. I should have just um, continued to riff off his question. Mm -hmm. He said, "May I have the opportunity to bring you a possible deal? I will find a deal here in Chicago. Uh, what are the numbers that would work in order for me to get into a project together? I know I don't bring a ton of money to the table, but I would do whatever possible to make it work otherwise." Yeah, I'm not crazy about the Chicago market, so that's your market. Um, but if you have something that's very opportunistic, I may still consider it. Again, if it's two million dollar, uh, two million plus in upside in short order within twelve months, um, you know, I may consider uh, take at least I'll take a look at it. All right. Uh, next question from Suraj. Mm -hmm. He said, "I'm learning that most commercial loans have a prepayment penalty during the first five years of the loan." If it's a value-add mm -hmm. property and we plan to sell it off within the first one or two years after stabilization, I imagine no way mm -hmm. to avoid prepayment penalty to the lender, correct? Uh, in mm -hmm. all my residential loans, none of them have prepayment penalties. In your experience with commercial lenders, mm -hmm. are there a few lenders who don't have prepayment penalties or usually in commercial loans, are there always prepayment penalties? Yeah, great question, Suraj. First of all, I never sign a loan with a prepaid penalty in case of a sale of the property. It's negotiable. Um, I negotiate that all the time. If it's a non-recourse loan, uh, it's going to be difficult to do it. Non-recourse loan means usually it's securitized. They sell it to Wall Street, and those are you know, impossible to change terms on it. They also call it CMBS, Commercial Mortgage Backed Security type of loans. And uh, they come with a big, hefty yield maintenance. And what is yield maintenance means? That means because they sold that as a financial product to investors, Wall Street, to get that yield to the investors, whatever your rate is, 5%, 6%, uh, you have to go ahead and replace that yield maintenance. So, And to replace it basically means you're going to have to pay the remainder of the interest due on the term of the loan. That's why you want to avoid... Uh, those yield, yield maintenance prepay uh, type of loans. But typically, if it's a credit union, Wells Fargo, uh, we call it portfolio lender, balance sheet lender, that they're lending from their savings and deposits, um, it's negotiable. Uh, the past three, four loans I've done, I've put a clause in there. There is no prepaying event of a sale of a property. That's what you want to do. If you're buying a value at the end, your intention is to sell it, in the next couple of years. Um, also, even if you don't sell it and you want to refinance, do a cash out refi, um, you want to definitely have a, a step down prepay. So you don't want to fix 5% for five years. You want to have five, four, three, two, one. What I've 
negotiated even on that is instead of a five, four, three, two, one, I've done a three, two, one on a five year, uh, or sometimes I do five, uh, four and then three and then zero, zero for the past, uh, two years of the term there, everything's negotiable with a lender, but you want to definitely make sure you have no prepay in the event of a sale and a stay away from those yield maintenance prepay loans. All right. And then uh, follow a question from Suraj. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm hearing from some other of your members who I've networked with that they have CoStar memberships while some mm -hmm. don't have it. So far, I've only used LoopNet and Crexy Premium, mm -hmm. which Crexy Premium costs $1,000 a year to him. Uh, he said, I've heard CoStar is five to seven times more expensive than Crexy Premium. In your opinion, is CoStar something that you recommend your members subscribe to? Uh, does it list more properties? Or is it just giving more mm -hmm. comps and other area of property related data? Yeah, great question. Depends how much capital you have. You know, if you have $250,000, $300,000 and you're ready to dip your toes into commercial property opportunities in that arena, it's worth paying the 450 bucks a month uh, to co-star to get it, in my opinion. But Crexy Premium is fantastic as well, and LoopNet is great. Um, I would start with those two, uh, three to four months. If you can't find a, an opportunistic deal that fits your criteria in the market, then you know try the CoStar. Unfortunately, CoStar is starting to put you know terms on them uh, for their membership. I think it's a one-year minimum, so it's a big commitment. You know, it's you know what uh, four fifty a month. It's just under six thousand dollar commitment. It's a lot of money, but again, you've got two hundred to three hundred thousand dollar cash, and you want to invest it, and you're ready to. Uh, you know, dive into it, then, you know, you need to power up with your tools and research and have access to deal flow and CoStar is great. All right. Uh, next question from Edward Cho. He said, if a property has difficulty filling up its vacancies, but mm -hmm. meets all the other criteria, is this a red flag? I'm looking at a few medical properties with three to five units and 25 to 60% occupancy. Mm -hmm. that have been on the market for over a year. If these properties currently have challenges finding tenants, will mm -hmm. I have the same issues? Well, I looked at as, uh, you know, if a property is on the market for a year and it has 50% vacancy, to me, that's an opportunity. Now, very rare occasion, that's a red flag. Uh, what are the scenarios of a red flag? If uh, you have a hospital that's close by, because it's a medical building and the hospital has closed down and they built a new campus five miles away well that's a red flag um because you know medical buildings do great when they're in the close proximity to a hospital uh what is another red flag if another business opened close by that has uh you know it works as a deterrent uh for this building i would say like a homeless shelter you know if it's across the street uh or next to it um otherwise you know if it's got that much of a vacancy your best bet is to talk to an active medical leasing broker and find out what's the scoop and why is it vacant why is it struggling and they'll be able to give you better color why um a lot of times it has to do with the ownership the ownership doesn't want to put money into the building and also doesn't want to put money in ti's um and brokers tend to stay away and not tour those buildings because you know 
it's got a difficult landlord that uh, doesn't have enough capital or they don't even want to put money into tenant spaces. So there tend to be uh, buildings that they struggle, you know, but I would talk to a leasing broker. All right. And then a uh, follow up question from Edward. Mm -hmm. He said for density requirements, can we utilize your recommendations for five mile radius of mm -hmm. 70,000 households and $60,000 average income? Yeah. If it's on a highway, if it's on a highway on a major corridor, you could, you know, that's the only, uh, depends also, um, if you have an anchor tenant that draws traffic. So let's say you have a grocery, uh, anchor tenant and you have five mile radius has a 70,000 population. Well, you know, your anchor tenant is going to draw the foot traffic. So the density is not as important, right? Uh, but if you're buying a shopping center with, uh, eight mom and pop tenants and there's three vacancies and the density is not there, um, and is not off the highway, um, you're going to have problems, you know, getting it leased up and also get traction on bumping the rents. All right. Uh, next question from our member, Amin, he said, even though mortgage rates have increased, why is real estate prices continuing to climb? <laughs> yeah. So mortgage rates go up and there is a lag. Um, just because rates go up, sellers don't reduce their purchase price. Uh, there is about usually six month lag. Um, rates go up, buyers go away because they can't afford it. Right. What happens? The seller doesn't sell in six months, four months, they start reducing the purchase price. That's why there's a six month lag. And uh, there's no doubt that the housing market is going to cool off 100%. I have no doubt. Um, but it's going to take six months to 12 months for you guys to see it uh, actually live in the marketplace with sellers reducing their purchase price to get more buyers bidding on their property because affordability goes down when the rates go up. Now, there is some exception to the rule for some areas. Uh, for example, you know, my area, average house is 10 million up to 40 million. Um, almost every single purchase that's north of, you know, $15 million has been all cash with a lot of Chinese foreigners buying. So in those circumstances, they're bringing money in from, you know, another country. They want to park it in coastal properties. That's not going to so much affect, you know, be affected by rates. Right. But on an average house, uh, you know, uh, in the marketplace, most definitely is is going to be affected with higher rates and you know the fed is going to be uh pushing the rates up in may in june and probably the third meeting so it you know very high possibility they could raise it one percent in the next two meetings and that's a lot right because the 10-year treasury has already gone up almost three uh, up to three percent so it's going to definitely affect it but there's a six to six month lag so you'll see it all right. And then a follow-up question from Amin on the same topic. What is your prediction for three, five, and 10 years of both residential and commercial real estate growth paths? Man, I don't know. <laughs> um, it all, it's all function of what the Fed is going to do. Um, we're definitely going to have a recession at some point. 
and that always dampens the prices on all asset classes, uh, stocks, real estate. Uh, what's my prediction? Also depends on the asset class. Um, I think office is going to recover when you're going to see multifamily go down uh, in two, three years from now. Office buildings are going to start stabilizing and go up. Um, so there is a, definitely an imbalance when it comes to commercial property asset classes because of COVID, um, especially on office. So it all depends. But I'm bullish overall on real estate because when inflation goes up, uh, you know, hard assets are best place to have your money uh, parked in. So, but there is corrections definitely, you know, anticipated in residential and multifamily. Um, I believe in next, you know, couple of years, there will be a good uh, adjustment to those asset class prices. But nobody knows. I've been wrong when COVID hit. I thought we we're going to have a lot of foreclosures. But guess what? Fed came to save everybody, dropped the rate one and a half percent in one event, and also printed seven trillion, eight trillion dollars. So liquidity went up and cost of money went down. It was like a perfect storm for everything to, you know, go parabolic. All right. Uh, next question from Eric Ray. He said, how do you aggregate data to determine a geographic area to invest into? I can't imagine you're manually looking through listings and using Excel. <laughs> no, I just look at two things. Disposable income, all right? Average household income, that's extremely important. Uh, and also density. So how many people are going to be driving by, walking by the property and live within three mile radius? And how much money is in their pocket so they can invest, uh, spend it at my tenants' stores, right? Those are the only two things you need to be concerned with. Um, of course, you know, it, it all depends on uh, if you're looking at industrial, you're not going to have high density, right? They're typically not in middle of downtown. So uh, I'm referring to office and retail, right? So depends on asset class. All right. Next question from Samar. Uh, we live in the Metro DC area mm -hmm. and we are seeing several signs of several commercial real estate properties that have available leases. Mm -hmm. On the surface, it looks like a bad sign to purchase commercial real estate with so many open leases. Would you agree? And what would your advice be? So it's a commercial space, meaning office or retail with a lot of vacancy. Correct. All cool. over the Metro DC area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, I don't know a specific sub markets. So DC area, reach out to a national, uh, leasing broker, pick their brain. They know the trend. They know what's why the market may be experiencing high sub market vacancy and just pick their brain and get some input on that sub market. But yeah, if it's a lot of vacancy, if it's office, well, most places do have high vacancy right now because of COVID and hybrid people working from home. But if it's a retail center that's suffering, you know, above average nationwide vacancy rate on the retail, then I would be concerned. All right. And then to circle back to a question um, that Siraj had, yeah, he said, I'm just curious on what sort of, what sort of wall paint color do you recommend and mm -hmm. use for regular office space buildings when you remodel? Um, if it is vacant, needs work prior to leasing. Uh, he said, I imagine basic white. 
or do you go for light grays, another beige type of color, et cetera? <laughs> and then on that note, curious on your experience on what office space tenants like for cabinet colors. Oh, always light colors. Don't go crazy with, you know, beige, yellow, pink, purple. Uh, yeah, white, off-white, grays. Uh, but more importantly, talk to your leasing broker. You know, every market's different. Uh, if you're in El Paso, Texas, or if you're Newport Beach, it's completely different demographics. And, you know, some uh, ethnicities love different colors than others. But uh, I don't know which area you're talking about, but definitely talk to a leasing broker. You never go wrong with going off white and light grays. Um, and just that's more of a modern co-working space colors. And you can always just go on Google and put WeWork. Look at the colors they're using, right? Because they're tailoring to every single business out there. So they will choose colors that in general is acceptable and attractive to every business, right? So just Google WeWork and look at the pictures of their offices. All right. Uh, next question from MK Shah said, how do you go about identifying mismanaged properties as looking at the listing? It's hard to tell. Um, mm -hmm. What do you look for? Vacancy. So vacancy is the first uh, indicator is mismanaged. Um, number two, you know, physical appearance of the property. If you see the monument sign is all faded. Uh, you look at it at night, there's only two bulbs in there out of 20. <laughs> it's half lit up. If the parking lot, you can't even see the uh, a stripe uh, on the parking light, uh, light uh, parking lot, um, a lot. Just a physical uh, condition of the property. But more importantly, your upside is if there is, you know, a vacancy over what the submarket vacancy is. So that's the biggest one. All right. And then last question of the day from Cicera. We saw a retail property selling for around $29 per square foot with 87% occupancy. The only red flag is the three mile population is 11,000. What is your take on it? No take. Don't even think about it. Um, it's going to be very difficult to get new tenants. <clears throat> That's basically, there is no density there. 11,000 and three mile. I'm scared to even look at a one mile density. There is probably under 2000 population or a thousand. Um, those properties are, you know, it's basically a village and I've had pretty bad experience buying properties in villages, uh, getting traction on leasing or even finding a good broker to manage it and lease it for me. So I would stay away from it. There is a reason it's 29 bucks a foot. Um, I've bought a high rise building for 29 bucks a foot, 12 story in a very high density area in Houston and already got three leases done in three months. That's on my 12 story building. And this building that you're referring to, you're gonna be lucky if you get one lease done in 12 months. All right, with that, uh, that uh, completes our session for this week. Good questions guys. And I'm happy you guys added more questions in the comment section and keep, keep it up. So see you guys next week, be safe, be well and uh, keep up the hustle.